You're listening to the Revolution Church Podcast. To learn more, including our gathering times in Crossville, Tennessee, visit us at CrossvilleRevolution.com. Hey, we're in week number eight of our series where we're going through the book of Ephesians. Uh, If you're new to Revolution Church, what we do about 90 to 95 percent of the time, and you guys that are regulars, you know what I'm getting ready to say as we preach verse by verse through entire books of the Bible or through large passages of Scripture. Uh, You've landed right in the middle of the book of Ephesians. And if I could review a little bit, give you a little bit of context of the book of Ephesians. We've talked about this uh, pretty much at length the first several weeks. But Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 that we've already been through were heavy, heavy, heavy theology, heavy doctrine. In fact, in chapters 1 through 3, you can't find one place where Paul instructs Christians to do anything. Instead, what he talks about the entire time is our wealth in Christ. In fact, you'll find that phrase in Christ some 27 times in the first three chapters. Well, last week we started chapter 4 and chapters 4 through 6, they switch from theology to application. They switch from doctrine to looking at, okay, you've learned all this in the first three chapters. Now, how do we apply what we've learned? And of course, last week we started out uh, this applicational part of the book of Ephesians by talking about how Our walk needs to be worthy. We need to walk worthy or we need to live worthy. This week, we're going to talk about and really ask the question, not just walking worthy, but how straight are you walking? Uh, You know, in my ministry, and and I'm not bragging here uh, about the church or my ministry or anything like that. Most pastors would say this, but in a little over 10 years since we started Revolution Church, uh, I have seen Thousands of people make a profession of faith in Christ. In a little over 10 years, our church has baptized well over 1,500 people in a little over 10 years, y'all, which is crazy. And we've seen thousands more people make a confession to follow Jesus. What I've learned in professions in faith is it's similar to being married. You know, when you get married, the wedding is the easy part. In other words, Getting married really is kind of the fun part, unless you have crazy family, and it's the easy part. But as many of us would attest that are married in here or we've been married, we would say staying married is the difficult part. It's the same thing with following Jesus. I would submit to you this weekend that when it comes to following Christ, that getting saved is the easy part. It's the exciting part. It's the fun part. It tends to be the most emotional part. But walking with Jesus every single day the rest of your life, that's the difficult part. It's the hard part to become more like Christ. We're going to see Paul unpack this idea of how hard it is to walk with Christ today as he gives us two quick points and then some specific things that we can sort of test ourselves on. I can remember when I was a kid, I had a Dallas Cowboys t-shirt that was my favorite t-shirt. Now, I'm not a Cowboys fan now, so don't stone me. But when I was a kid, uh, I was a Dallas Cowboys fan, and I had a Dallas Cowboys t-shirt, and I wore that thing everywhere. It was my play shirt. It was comfortable. And I can remember, I don't remember the details, so the details may be a little off, but I remember one time my mom was getting ready to take me to the daycare that I went to at the time. And I'd worn that Dallas Cowboys t-shirt like five days in a row, and it hadn't been washed. And she looked at me and said, you are not wearing that shirt. It is filthy. I'm not taking you to daycare. What will people think of me if they see you wearing that and it's that dirty? You need to go change your shirt. I can remember when I was a teenager. I grew up in the 90s. Anybody in here grow up in the 90s? Raise your hand. You remember what the 90s were like fashion-wise? We wore like jeans that were 30 sizes too big and that's where sagging started and I grew up in the inner city in Knoxville. You guys remember that band Crisscross uh, and how everybody started wearing their clothes backwards because that band, how stupid were we? Y'all know what I mean? Like, goodness gracious, what is wrong with us? But the fashion was different back then. And I can remember my parents would take me to a function or take me to church or something like that. I'd go to church when I'd go see my dad every other weekend and They'd look at me and they'd look at the clothes I was wearing and they would say something to the effect of, you are not going out dressed like that. You look like a hooligan. I'm not taking you to this event dressed like that. 
You need to go change. I can remember about three or four years ago, some of my younger staff members came to me after I'd preached at Chosen Youth, which is a youth event that they have in January for the students. It's coming up this year too. They said, Pastor Josh, we've got to talk to you. You look like you're dressing like a 20-year-old and you're in your 40s. You've got to stop. Thank you for laughing. I appreciate that. This past Thursday, I turned 44. Yep. And so I'm loading up on sweater vests now. Y'all know what I'm saying? But I had a shirt that I'd worn since I started the church, and I started the church in my early 30s, didn't even think about it, and they came to me and said, Pastor, I had two of them specifically, PJ and Donovan, hey man, you can't shop at Rue 21 anymore. You're in your 40s now, don't do that anymore. And I had to change what I was wearing to fit really my maturity level and my age. Today we're going to see Paul use a figurative and metaphor, really, to talk about our spiritual growth in Christ and our maturity. You're going to see he's going to talk about taking our old self off, clothing-wise, and putting on our new self, clothing-wise. Taking off the clothes of the world, if you will, and putting on Christ's clothes. And for many of us in here, hopefully you're going to have conviction and realize I think I need a wardrobe change in my life. I'm wearing some clothes that are filthy that I've been wearing way too long, and it's time to put on some clean clothes. I'm wearing some clothes that are making me act like a hooligan, and I need to change my clothes. I'm wearing some clothes that I used to wear back when I was younger, but I need to grow up, and I need to mature and realize that now I need to wear something different. The title of my sermon today is Change Your Clothes. Look at somebody around you and say, Change Your Clothes. Say it, do it, participate in that stuff. Don't be a negative ninny. Now, just for good measure, look at the person on the other side of you and say, I like your shirt, bro, you know. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. And again, we're going to look at two very simple points that are kind of, duh, if you're a Christian. But then we're going to look at five specific things that Paul talks about. And I'll be honest with you, in one of those five specific things today, um, I think God's going to rock your world and mess with your theology because you're going to learn something that you might have never learned today. Let's start in verse 17. Y'all with me? Say, I am. Paul says, so I tell you this. Now, just a side note, because Paul says so, it means that this passage connects to the previous passage. This is why we go through entire books of the Bible, because if we lifted this out of context, you wouldn't understand what he was talking about last week. So if you'll allow me to add a little parentheses here to summarize what we talked about last week that connects directly to this passage, Paul says, so, parentheses, when you're functioning as a body, united in peace as a church, I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. The first point Paul makes in this passage is, number one, don't live like the world if you're a Christian. Don't dress like the world for our purposes. That's what I should have called this point. Don't dress like the world if you're a Christian. He uses this phrase and he says, don't live as the Gentiles do. Now, we've already established in the previous weeks that the church is made up of Christian Hebrews and Christian Gentiles. So he's not referring and belittling the Christian Gentiles. He's talking about the rest of the Gentiles that don't know Christ. Long story short, what Paul is referring to is the pagan worldly culture that most of the Gentiles followed. And so Paul is saying, don't live like the world, don't dress like the world, don't follow a pagan, worldly, broken culture. Paul is essentially saying, when you get saved, you cannot play it safe. You have to take off 
all the things that you've learned from the world, whatever way you learn them, whether your parents taught them to you, whether your school taught them to you, whether social media taught them to you, and you have to put on the things that Christ wants you to put on instead. He's saying in this first opening part that it's dangerous to live as a Christian chameleon or a hypocrite as a Christian, if you will. And what he's setting up here in the first part is, you know, there's this famous country song. I think Aaron Tippin sings it. I'm not sure. But this is what he's saying. If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything in your life. So you better be standing for Christ. You better be doing the best you can to follow him and look more like him. Once again, let me remind you that the book of Ephesians is written to Christians. So when Paul says this, he's speaking to Christians and he's making clear that Christians can absolutely backslide. They can, they can start out strong in their Christian walk. You're excited about Jesus. You're following him. There's life change that starts happening. But somewhere along the way, and this happens to all of us, you start to take steps back towards the way you used to live. You start to lean and bend towards the way you used to think about things, the way you used to do things, the way you used to have your relationships. And Paul is saying, don't live like the world. Don't dress like the world. He gives us a list of phrases here that describe what I'll refer to as the wardrobe of the world. First, he says, the world has futility in their thinking. In other words, everything they think about is totally futile. In other words, they're chasing emptiness. He says, don't have a dark mind like they do. Don't, don't lack spiritual intelligence and spiritual perception. Don't chase the things that the world chases. Secondly, he says the world is darkened in their understanding. A simple way to put this is, hone in on the word dark. They're walking around blindly with no light and no God. Paul says, remember, you have a God called the Holy Spirit. You are walking in the light. The world walks around in the dark. Everybody that lives the world's ways is bumping their shin on every coffee table through life. But you have a God. You have light. He says, don't have a hardened heart like the world has. The word for hardened here is the word porosis in the Greek. It means stony or petrified condition like a petrified tree. He says, hey, don't let your heart become impenetrable. Don't get so calloused. And how many of y'all know the older you get, the easier it is because of the way your life experiences are, your relationships are. It's easier and easier to get more callous towards people, towards life. It's easy to get cold hearted. And he says, don't do that. Don't have a hardened heart. Fourthly, he says, the world has lost all sensitivity. In other words, in the world, they have no shame in anything they do. Have you noticed that in our culture? There's no shame in anything. And he says, don't get like that. Paul says, don't get to a place where the Lord gives you over, as it says in Romans 1, to a debased mind. In other words, you have no conviction in the way you're living your life. Rest assured, every single one of us, even if we're believers in Jesus, even the, the very best of us, we're still not perfect. In fact, what is our slogan, Rev Church? No, say it with me, no perfect people allowed. We're not perfect. Don't get so caught up in living like the world that you don't have conviction about the things you do wrong. No matter how big or small you may perceive those things to be. And finally, he says, don't live like the world. Don't dress like the world because their wardrobe is full of greed. Full of greed. What's the root of all evil, Rev Church? Some of y'all said money. Money is not the root of all evil. Money is a tool. Money is neutral. But you need to understand the Bible doesn't say money's evil. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. It's your attitude and your thought process towards money and the place it has in your life that makes it evil. He says, don't be full of greed. Don't have a love of money because that is the root of all evil. Don't live like the world. The next part of the passage, what do you think he says? He balances this by saying, do live like Christ. Look what he says in verse 20. Y'all with me? Say, I am. It says, that, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, 
to be made, listen to this phrase, here's the main phrase of tension, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Do live like Christ. Do dress like Christ. We don't have enough time to get into this theologically rich few verses here, but we do have time to get into what is known as the main phrase of tension. This is what you do when you read the Bible. You look for words of tension, phrases of tension. And the main phrase of tension in this part of the passage, unquestionably, is when Paul is saying, put on Christ, take off the old clothes, put on the new clothes. And he says, be made new in the attitude of your minds. What Paul is pointing out is a thread that you will see all throughout the New Testament. And the idea is the way we live begins with how we think. Now, I'm not talking some prosperity gospel to you that you just have to think it and God will make it happen. No, what I'm simply telling you the Bible lays out is your brain controls what your hands do. Your brain controls where your feet go. Your brain controls your actions. Our sinful behavior originate with our attitudes, with our thought processes, with really in our minds towards God, towards sin, and towards our actions. Christ-like behavior begins, in other words, with a transformed mind. All throughout the New Testament, we see this. In fact, let me give you some scriptures. Here's another list for you of some scriptures of how we do live like Christ and we want our minds to be renewed and made new in the attitude. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says this. Now, keep in mind, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul just said that we need to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice for Christ. And then in verse 2, he's telling us how we do this. Look what he says in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans chapter 8, verse 6 says, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16 tells us that when you become a Christian, you're supposed to have the mind of Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, another prison epistle. Paul wrote the book of Ephesians while he was in prison, wrote the book of Colossians while he was in the same prison. He says, you used to be, before you knew Christ, Hostile in your mind. Earlier this year, we went verse by verse through the book of James. And in James chapter 1, verse 8, if you remember, it says, A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. We serve the Lord with our minds first and foremost. Does that make sense to everybody? Say amen. This entire passage summarized in one sentence could be stop thinking like the world, start thinking like Christ, and then imitate Christ by sacrificially loving others. Sacrificially loving others. Now, he uses these phrases. Put off your old self. Put on your new self. And now comes to the point where we see Paul give five specific examples, and one of them actually has a list of things. And these aren't all it is, but these are pretty specific. Things that we're supposed to put off and put on. In other words, evil things that we used to be a part of and we used to do that we take off, and righteous things that are cross-like that we put on. If that doesn't make sense to you, think of it this way. You take off the Crimson Tide jersey and you put on the UT Vols jersey. You take off the Georgia Bulldogs jersey, evil. Where's Pastor Brandon at? I don't know if he's in here. And you put on the UT Vols. I'm just playing. I'm just playing. Paul is getting ready to compare. And listen to me, those of you that claim to follow Christ. The old you, before you knew Jesus, to the new you, now that you know Jesus. And what we're going to see clearly here is that when someone accepts Christ, there is a clear change that takes place in their life after they accept Jesus. You're not perfect. I didn't say that. But there is a change in your thinking 
and a change in how you do things when you accept Christ. If you're in here and you at some point went to church, went to a youth camp, went up front, repeated a prayer that someone said, I'm not saying that those things are bad. I'm just saying that the majority of the people, I think, fall into this category. You went up front, you said a prayer, some preacher or somebody told you you were saved, but then you went home and there was absolutely no difference in your life whatsoever. You most likely do not know Christ. I say that because you will not find a supporting scripture or one example in the entire Bible where someone gets saved and stays exactly the same. There is always a change that takes place. My mentor, Pastor Tony Wilson, puts it like this. If you are what you were, then you ain't. Everybody get that? That makes sense up here in Cross Vegas? It's bad grammar, but it's good preaching. If you are what you were, then you ain't. I love this passage of Scripture because Paul, what he's talking about the church needs to be is godly. He doesn't talk about church programs. He doesn't talk about having some dynamic pastor that preaches great sermons. He doesn't talk about how many you're running in church. I'm not saying those things are evil. But notice, Paul's focus is on church godliness. Paul is saying through this passage, and as we get into these five things, you'll see it. The most important thing you can be is Christ-like. Not talented. Not have degrees from cemeteries. I mean seminaries. Sorry, Freudian slip there. But Christ-like. We're going to see these five things and understand that these five things absolutely affect your relationship with God. All five of these things as well affect your relationship with other people as well. 100% it does. You're going to see Paul give us a balance of, again, not to belabor this, but we need to understand, he balances a negative command, take this off, with a positive command, put this on. And you're going to see Paul really unpack the idea that it really speaks to hypocrisy, but our beliefs need to match our behavior. Your behavior throughout the week, it doesn't just, it's not just Sundays that God's looking at. He's looking at all throughout the week, and what you say you believe should match your behavior. So let's start out with these five things and uh, go from there. Y'all ready? Say, I am. Verse 25, he tells us the first one. And you're going to see sort of a formula that Paul gives us. All of them sound sim similar, but they're different things. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. First, he says, put off falsehood and put on truthful speech. Falsehood means this. It's the Greek word suedos, which includes all forms of lying. Everyone in here knows that out-and-out -out lies are wrong, but this also includes what I'll say are carefully crafted narratives that are meant to deceive people. I mean, y'all know that you can technically tell the truth while you're not being honest. All of us have been guilty of it. Well, they were asking me about it, but I didn't say this. I didn't give them all the details, so they walked away thinking something totally that wasn't true. This is what this is speaking to. This includes deception, exaggerating, half-truths, plagiarism, flattery. Five minutes before class, can I look at your paper and copy the answers for my homework? Using chat GPT and AI to write your papers for you in college. Using chat GPT and AI to write my sermons for me when I preach. That's what this includes. Any form of hypocrisy. This includes someone in here that may struggle with habitual promise breaking. 
You meant well when you promised to do that thing for that person, but over and over again, it doesn't matter what you meant. There's plenty of people that are in hell that mean well. Y'all know what I'm saying? But you constantly break those promises. So you're just, you're a liar. Instead, he says, put on truthful speech. What does that mean? Your yes is yes, your no is no. You make abundantly clear when you are answering someone about something or someone or whatever it is. You give all the details. There is no wiggle room for misinterpretation. Therefore, you're not bearing false witness. Why do we do this? Paul gives us the why for all five of these. Why do we do this? He says, because we're all members of one body. Realistically, what this means is truthfulness builds trust and respect within the body of Christ. Lying undermines and causes conflicts and confusion. Any of you guys that are married in here, you know when your spouse even lies about the smallest thing, exaggerates the smallest thing, all it leads to is conflict, all it leads to is confusion. When your teenager tells you just something that's a little off or doesn't share everything with you and makes you think one thing, and eventually, uh, kids in here, we're just going to tell you, we're always going to find out. Amen, parents? Like, we always know what you're up to. We've been there. We've done that. We know everything. What's done in the dark is going to be brought to the light, and this is why you lose your mind. Because you know there's falsehood. This isn't truthful speech. Secondly, in verse 26, he says, and honestly, verse 26, y'all, this is where I'm going to spend the majority of the rest of my time today. Because I'm going to teach something, and it may mess with your theology, and I'm okay with that, because this is so important. Because here is where Paul talks about the spiritual warfare aspect to the things that he talks about. Listen to what he says in verse 26. Y'all with me? Say, I am. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And then listen to this in verse 27. Do not give the devil a foothold. Paul says, put off what we'll refer to as sinful rage and put on what we'll refer to as controlled indignation. Sinful rage is when you allow anger to control you to a point where you seek to harm the person or people that angers you. Sinful rage is when you look for retaliation and revenge. Sinful rage is what holds on to grudges and bitterness for years. Sinful rage is what leads to fists through walls. It's what leads to physical altercations. Sinful rage is what leads you to get arrested and then leads you to serve jail time and then leads to domestic abuse charges and then leads to restraining orders. And leads to all kinds of drama in your life. And by the way, it just leads to more anger and more rage. And you get into a cycle. He says, take that off. And instead have what we'll refer to as controlled indignation. You could call this righteous indignation. It's interesting that this verse points out something that's very clear in Scripture. Anger in itself is not sinful. He says, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. We saw that in Matthew 21, Jesus got angry. He had a righteous indignation for certain things. Psalm chapter 4, verse 4 points this out. But controlled indignation directs the anger it has in the appropriate direction and to the appropriate object. It's not angry with the people. It's angry at the enemy. And it's angry at things like sinful behavior, moral corruption, unjust circumstances. If I'm being honest with you, I think that people in the church could have a little more righteous indignation because the church in America especially has become so apathetic and so, hey, let's just sing kumbaya that we don't get a righteous indignation about anything that takes place in our culture. And there should be things in this culture that give you a righteous indignation. Is everybody with me? Say amen. They absolutely should. But what you don't do with that anger is project it on lost people or other Christian brothers or sisters. You're angry with behavior. You're angry that we have a real enemy. You're angry that we live in a fallen world, but you don't take it out on people. Why do you need to control your anger? This is very important. Are y'all with me? Say, I am. Because I'm getting ready to teach you something that you've probably never heard before. He says specifically here, so you don't give the devil a foothold. That's strong words right there. 
strong words. We'll rephrase it a couple ways in the next couple minutes. Let me tell you the two reasons why you don't let anger control you. The two things that describe perfectly what he means here when he says you don't give the devil a foothold. Number one, the longer you let a broken relationship go without forgiveness and reconciliation, the wider the wedge Satan drives between a relationship. That's number one. You and your sister fought 10 years ago at Christmas and you haven't spoken since then. It's going to be a lot more difficult 10 years later to reconcile that relationship than it would have been 10 years ago if you had squashed it right from the beginning. The enemy is masterful at creating wedges of bitterness and anger between people. Secondly, though, and this is the spiritual warfare aspect of it. Secondly, the more you let anger control you, the wider you open a window for spiritual warfare in your life. Don't give the devil a foothold. I always heard when I became a Christian, preachers preach on spiritual warfare, specifically on what's known as demonic possession and demonic oppression in a certain way. I never heard it different. I heard preachers say, essentially, and a lot of what I'm getting ready to teach you is really semantics over words. I think they mean the same thing that I'm going to teach you, but the words are important, so I'm going to mess with you. But I heard preachers say things like, Christians can't be possessed. They can only be oppressed. Because we've got the Holy Spirit inside of us, and a demon can't coincide with the Holy Spirit. And I can remember, I would hear stuff like that and think like, yeah, but isn't the Holy Spirit omnipresent? The Holy Spirit's everywhere. And we know that there's a war that's taking place and somehow they're coinciding. So how does this make sense? And then I would read certain scriptures and I'll get to those scriptures here in a minute, just a handful of them. And I would think to myself, well, what does that mean? Can Christians really not be demonically possessed and influenced by, by demons? Because this, this scripture seems to teach otherwise. The phrase demonic possession or really more specifically, the word possessed, has two separate Bible definitions. And one of those Bible definitions absolutely does not apply to Christians in the form of demonic possession, but one of them does. Hang with me, okay? Don't get up and walk out yet, Matt, okay? The first definition of possessed means to have as belonging to one or to own. This definition does not apply in spiritual warfare for Christians. Satan or a demon cannot own you. He cannot possess you in the sense that they own you. In other words, God will never lose a Christian. Go read Romans chapter 8. In other words, a Christian cannot be owned by Satan or demons. Because as we talked about in Ephesians chapter 1, Christians are sealed with the Holy Spirit and we are guaranteed eternal life. The second definition of the word possessed as it pertains to Scripture does apply though. The second definition is to have influence over someone and to be manifested through their speech or their actions. Is it possible... For a Christian to be internally influenced and say or do things with a demonic origin. Yes. Yes. Why do you say that, Josh? Because not many people say this. Well, if you go to the original Greek, hang with me here. I'm going to tie all this together here in a minute. If you go to the original Greek for the phrase demon possessed, the Greek is demoni zomai. Demoni means demon. Zoma meaning possessed. Now, in English, our definition of possessed or possession means ownership. But to understand this biblically, you've got to get outside just the English language or the English definition. The word zoma, which is the word for possessed, means this. Listen, it's similar to that second definition I gave you. It means to have mastery over or gain control. To have mastery over or gain, not ownership, but to have mastery over or gain control. The word possessed is the same word 
demon-possessed is the same word that's used in Luke 21, 19. By your patience, possess your souls, as Jesus says. Demons can gain power or influence over Christians externally, which we would categorize as oppression instead of possession, or internally as possession. On the outside, when you are oppressed by a demon, they can badger you, they can shame you, they can cause condemnation to come on your life. But on the inside, when this word zoma plays out and they gain influence or mastery from the inside, it can cause you to act or think in certain ways and it comes out in your actions. Let me give you some examples. Is everybody still with me? Say, I am. This is going to be the most important sermon for some of y'all's life. Listen to me. You remember in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. They sold a piece of property. They came to the church. They told them they gave them all the money for it, but actually they held back some of them, some of it for themselves. They were full of greed, in other words. Peter looked at them, and this is what he said. Peter says to Ananias and Sapphira, Satan has so filled your heart. Wait a minute. All theologians agree that Ananias and Sapphira were believers. They just made a mistake. But Satan filled their heart. Luke chapter 16. Peter, who confesses Jesus as the Christ in Luke 16. It's clear. He's saved. He knows Jesus. He says something to Jesus that Jesus knows he doesn't agree with. He turns around and looks at Peter, one of his inner three, a follower of Christ, and says, get behind me, what church? He doesn't say get behind me, Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. Now listen, if we disagree on this, it's no big deal. But you're going to have to deal with these scriptures as it pertains to your theology about spiritual warfare. Jesus didn't mince words. He didn't waste words. He meant what he said. Why did he look at Peter and say, get behind me, Satan? Furthermore, let me give you an example in one of the letters, the epistles. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Listen to this. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Amen, Rev Church. Christ has set us free. Amen, Rev Church. Stand firm then and do not, listen to this, let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. The book of Galatians is written to the church in Galatia. It's written to Christians. Why does it say, do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery? Think of spiritual warfare like this, y'all. Your life, in a metaphorical sense, is like a home that you own. You are the legal resident of that home. But you can choose to open doors and to open windows and let bad people into your home. And you can choose to let them stay and not use your legal authority to evict them out of your house. You can decide to let them stay and ruin your life and influence everything that's going on in your life. Or you can evict them. And by the way, Jesus is the evictor. Jesus is the evictor. Let me summarize what I'm saying with a statement. And then give you some examples. Is everybody with me? Say amen. Christians can open windows to their home through habitual sin, unbelief, addiction, adult act, uh, occult activity, and uncontrolled anger. You're giving the devil a foothold. Another way to say it, you're opening a window for the enemy to have influence in your life. Last Christmas, my wife and I were driving home from my dad's. He lives in Dayton, Tennessee. We were in Spring City. It's pitch black. There's no road, road lights or anything like that uh, or uh, street lights or anything like that. There was a guy who was in the lane next to us. We're on a four lane. He didn't have his lights on, and I went to change lanes, and I didn't see him because he didn't have his lights on. He gets furious with me, drives around in front of us, brake checks us. We get 
this close to hitting him. In the process of trying to wreck us, he almost wrecks his car into a tree. It probably would have flipped the car. I didn't know what this guy was doing. I thought he was going to stop his car in the middle. I'm getting my gun ready on my hip and my gun ready in my door because I always have one on my hip. I always keep one in my door. I'm thinking, am I getting ready to get in a shootout with this guy? This guy was angry. About that time, this is a true story, we go by a car wash in Spring City and there's a police officer sitting there. He sees that. He drives off. I turned to my wife after this happens on Christmas night. It was about 9 or 10 o'clock at night. And I literally said something to the effect of, what would possess someone like that. We almost get in a wreck. You think you'd be thankful that we didn't get in a wreck, but instead they go off not only trying to kill us, but in the process, they almost kill themselves. What would possess a person to do that? Anger. There are probably people sitting in this room that have said something to this effect before. When I get to a certain level of anger, I completely black out. I don't even remember what I said or what I did when I get that angry. It's like something else takes control of me. I've heard people say about people before. A wife say about her husband. He, he just, when he gets angry like that, are y'all with me? Say amen. He just turns into another person. When he gets angry like that, it's just not him. It's like he becomes someone totally different. You know why? Zomai. Possession. I hope this is making applicational sense. It's so simple. And I hope that this is helping some people that struggle with this and that you find absolute freedom from this. Let me give you another example and tie it to something different. Anger is similar to drinking alcohol. Clearly, when you read the scriptures, you cannot say that drinking alcohol is sinful. But when you drink too much alcohol and have too much of it, you get drunk and that's a sin. And then the spirit of pharmakia, which is when drugs take over your mind. When you get drunk, it controls your mind. It controls your actions. That's why in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, which we're going to get to in a couple weeks, it says, don't get drunk on wine. Instead, be drunk on the spirit. What is he meaning? When you get drunk on wine, it controls your thinking. It controls everything. It has influence over you. It possesses you. Instead, let the Holy Spirit control your mind, control your actions, control your thinking, possess you. Anger is like alcohol in the sense that the Bible doesn't say that anger in itself is sinful, just like the Bible doesn't say that drinking alcohol is sinful. But too much alcohol leads to sin and possession in the sense of zomai. Too much anger gives the devil a foothold to where it can control you. I hope this makes sense to everybody. Is everybody with me? Say amen. So if you've got this window open in your house and you've opened the door to spiritual warfare in your life where anger can... Hey, I struggle with anger. It's my biggest struggle today. My biggest struggle. Biggest struggle. Here's what you need to do. Daily... You need to take authority over it in Jesus' name. You need to, here's where the mind comes in, take every thought captive in Jesus' name. And you need to realize that you cannot do this by yourself. If you've struggled with anger for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, you need to understand the book of James says, when we confess our sins one to another, one to another is when we find healing. You've got to find somebody that's going to walk with you, that's going to help you, that's going to hold you accountable. The prayer of a righteous person has power in your life. They need to lay hands on you. They need to pray for you so that you can be set free of this in your life if you struggle with anger, because this is the danger. Make sense to everybody? Say amen. I got three more to go over, and I'm one minute over right now. I hope you're good. Everybody good in here? Say amen.
You want to go over the last three? Everybody say amen. Okay, good. Three people said yes, so we're going to keep going. If I get one, I'm going. Verse 28, the third one says, Anyone who has been stealing must no longer steal, but must work, do something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. He says, put off dishonest gain, put on honest labor. Dishonest gain is stealing, laziness, lack of motivation or hunger to produce something. Dishonest gain is shoplifting, embezzling, fraud, robbing banks, stealing someone's identity, borrowing off the supplies. We've never been guilty of that. Wasting time at work. I was talking with somebody last week that was like, yeah, at my old job, we used to have a bed in the back, and one of us would keep watch for our boss while the other took a nap. That's what it's talking about, okay, y'all? It's like, you know, people have work from home now. If you work for two or three different companies and get two or three different salaries and make that company think that you are working just for them, this is what it's talking about. Dishonest gain. Reneging on a debt. Dishonest gain. Not paying employees a fair wage. Dishonest gain. He says, take off dishonest gain. Put on honest labor. In other words, get a job and work. Do something useful. One commentator says, go from being a burden to a blessing. Men in here, listen to me. Get a job and work. Go from being a burden to the government to a blessing. Go from being a burden to your church to a blessing, if this makes sense. You know, if you need money, there's this crazy place you can go. I mean, I'm telling you, it's crazy. If you need money and you want to do things in your life, there's this place you can go. You know what it's you know what it is? It's called work, y'all. You can make money and go to work. He says, put on honest labor. Work is worship. You're missing a portion of worship. Why do we do this? So you'll have something to share, he says. Remember what he talked about, don't be full of greed? He's really saying here, switch from a spirit of consumerism, full of greed. It's all about me, 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 to a spirit of generosity. A spirit of generosity instead of consumerism. Why do we do it? So we have something to share. That's why we do it. We're thinking of others more than we think of ourselves. You remember the entire sermon last week? It would be summed up in that scripture in Philippians. Thinking of others more than you. Number four, 29. Y'all still with me? Say, I am. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful, building others up according to their needs so that it may benefit those who listen. He says, put off unwholesome talk, put on helpful talk. Unwholesome talk, the Greek word is sapros. It describes rotten fruit or putrid fish. So when you're thinking about unwholesome talk, think about anything that could make someone go, everybody go, kicks the gag reflex in. You've smelled a rotten fish. Let me give you some examples of this. Cursing, vulgar phrases, crude jokes, mean-spirited or unkind remarks. Or think about this one, getting the last word in. It's so quiet when I said that one last service too, I got you. Instead, have helpful talk. The, the phrases edify others. Don't tear people down, but build them up. You know, you'll learn as you get older. And what I've learned at 44 is I get a whole lot more bees with honey than I do vinegar. You know what I mean? That's what he's saying here. Why do we do this? Because it benefits those who listen. Old movie Bambi, Thumper, Bambi's buddy, says if you can't say something nice, don't say nothing at all. Great movie, right? One of my favorite movies, Billy Madison from the 90s. Y'all know what Billy Madison is? Everybody say amen. He's in a contest with a guy, and they have to give a speech about some category of stuff. Billy gives his speech, and the guy who's the referee for the contest says this about Billy's speech. Mr. Madison, what you've just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I've ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. This is what Paul is saying. By the way, that like kind of summarizes most of what we post on social media as well. I'm not meaning to step on toes, but boy, we are. I hope you got your still toes on. Last one, number five, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ God forgave you. He says, put off hateful attitudes, put on loving attitudes. He gives us a list of hateful attitudes. We've got them for, us for the screen with a descriptor. He gives us a list of loving attitudes. We've got them for the screen with a descriptor. 
Why do we do that? So we don't grieve the Holy Spirit and we imitate Christ. I read a story online last week about a lady that was driving home one day and there was an injured dog on the highway. So she stopped, got the dog in her car, picked it up, took it home. And when she got home, her husband freaked out. And the reason he freaked out is because, well, let me just show you. Here's a picture of the dog that she saved on the highway. There it is. Now, we know what this is in Crossville, right? That ain't a dog. That's a coyote. Woman was mistaken. She brought something into her house that was a predator that would eat her dogs, that would spread rabies, that would cause all kinds of problems in her household, and her husband gets rid of it, thankfully. What Paul is saying in this passage is, don't look like one thing and then act like another behind the scenes. As I've said, he's really calling out hypocrisy here. He's saying, don't try to make people think you're a puppy, but you're really a predator. Because here's the deal. You ain't fooling nobody. You're not fooling anybody. There may be that one person that stops on the road that's a little gullible that'll pick you up and say, oh, it's a puppy. But everybody else is going to have the reaction you guys had when I showed you the picture and go, does this make sense, y'all? If you claim the name of Christ, carry the name of Christ well. It's interesting, that command, don't take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. What it really means is don't carry the name of God in vain. Carry your cross. In other words, take off your old clothes that you used to wear, put on your new clothes. Interesting fact, in a, a medieval times, Christians were baptized naked. You think we make it uncomfortable up here and you're intimidated. Man, can you imagine? You know what I mean? Like, I just don't know all those people. Well, at least we don't do it naked, you know. But they literally, they took this passage and that's what they based it off of. They saw it as you taking off your old clothes and as soon as you came out of the baptistry, you were putting on your new garments for Christ. Let me pray for you guys. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for today. Thank you for everybody's patience in here as I've went a little bit over. Uh, what a heavy, heavy sermon today, God. I just pray that it ministers to people and your word cuts through bone and marrow and judges the attitudes of life. We love you in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. We love you guys. We'll see you next week. You're dismissed. If you're encouraged by today's message, be sure and rate us and subscribe on iTunes.